Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this journey through the gospel of Matthew. Lord, we've covered a lot of ground over the last couple years. And in these last few months, Matthew slows his story down. And we focus on the events surrounding the betrayal, the arrest, the sentencing, and ultimate capital punishment that will be afflicted upon Christ. And so, Lord, as we navigate our way through this story, uh, sort of timing things with our, our, our calendar here, kind of coming upon Easter, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to feel the, the weightiness of these stories, that we would get a, a, a better understanding of what Christ went through for us. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die in our place. We thank you that his work on the cross was completely sufficient, that he absorbed the sin of the world in full. We thank you that we can approach you by faith. And Lord, as we read this passage, as we study the text, we ask that your spirit would illuminate its meaning May we understand the context. May we see the principles that apply to our life, that we would walk uh, leaving this place, Lord, knowing you more intimately, uh, more surrendered and more dependent upon you. We thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in our midst. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too are with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you are, you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said. Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. 
the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price has been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. It's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So when I find myself on the road, if Ann and I are on vacation, one of the things I, I, uh, I don't know what, it, one of the things I really enjoy on TV is um, sort of like forensic shows, um, you know, where they take DNA and they, they go to the cold case files and they start piecing together the whodunit. And, and uh, I, for some reason, I don't know why, I don't watch these shows at home. But something about a hotel room, I like, that's all I want to watch. And so it's one of those things that if we're on vacation or we're somewhere where the TV comes on and it's like, okay, when the kids go to bed, you can watch your little like whodunit shows. And I love it because sometimes there's like a fugitive that they apprehend. You'll remember a couple years ago, we, ha- we had one of these famous trials, this lady, I forget her name. She escaped from a Michigan prison like 30 or 40 years ago. And then through forensic studies and fingerprints, they found her living in like Rancho Bernardo or Poway or something. She's sort of like a soccer mom, had been going through her life, had this totally fake life. And I was like, wow, how did they get this lady? This is crazy. Then on the other hand, there's the one that terrifies me, where the guy who's rotting away in prison for like 40 years and, and somehow the technology's Uh, improve and they take old DNA and they're able to match the DNA and it turns out that the the guy who's been in prison for 50 years is actually innocent. Oh, it terrifies me. It makes me sick to my stomach because I have a very rational fear that this is going to happen to me someday. I'm convinced of it. (laughs) I'm going to be the one guy in prison who's actually innocent, but the technology is not there to exonerate me. Last week, we looked at the second of three of the Jewish trials of Jesus. Today, we'll look at the, the third, which is hardly a trial. It's more of an affirmation of what they determined at the second trial, that Jesus was guilty. Before the human court, they'd found him guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be something that he was not, and that was God. However, the heavenly courts will show that he was indeed God and he'll be exonerated. But the reality was, is Jesus isn't going to be exonerated in the heavenly courts. The reality is, is the heavenly courts understood or understand or understand the actual mission that Jesus was on. He came to redeem us, uh, to make a way that we could get right with God because of our sin. And I ended last week with sort of saying that the most important trial of Jesus that, 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 for us and how we handle this whole thing is the reality that Jesus is on trial in our hearts today. What happened some 2,000 years is still ongoing today. Each one of us 
has placed Jesus on trial in our hearts, whether you believe or you don't believe. If you don't believe, right now there's a trial going on, and you've either said that he's foolish, that he's not God, he's not worthy of my worship. For those of us who believe, I hate to say it, but we still put Jesus on trial. Yeah, he's God, I have my fire insurance, but I'm going to go ahead with my life, and I've only deemed him to be a little God, worthy of keeping me out of hell, but not worthy for me to live my life for. And that trial is, is critical. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, and if he accomplished what the scriptures say he did, he is worthy of, of, of everything of ours. Now today, in the midst of this court trial, we're going to look at two lives, Judas and, and Peter. And the other way around, though, Peter and then Judas. These, these guys who, really in today's story, this is the low point of their lives. We'll see two men, two different failures. One will deny Jesus. The other will betray him. We see two different ways of how they handled their failure. And I think that there's a handful of lessons for us to learn in the midst of the story. And so now we pick up the story in verse 69. We read, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard to sort of get our bearings straight. If we were to go back up to verse 58, we see that Peter was following him, that's Jesus, at a distance. As far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. So we've followed Peter in this story. We, we know what he's up to as we sort of look at the, the various accounts. Um, Matthew, from verses 59 to 67, he's examining the second trial of Jesus, the second trial of the religious leaders. Um, the other gospels tell us that as Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, as he was sort of hauled away, he was taken to the high priest um, Annas' home, his courtyard, um, th- th- while that's labeled a, a trial, it's, it's hardly a trial. I, I really think that Annas was asking him some questions, uh, trying to figure out what he taught, what he was all about. Um, he was stalling so that they could get a, a, a pool of people to sort of have the trial, the second trial, at the high priest Caiaphas's house. Now, these two high priests, they, according to the scriptures, there's only one high priest. Now, Annas was the actual Jewish high priest, Caiaphas was his son-in-law that the Roman government had sort of in, uh, installed him as the high priest. So there's two high priests. Annas was actually, the, like amongst the Jewish people, was the real one. Caiaphas sort of was a, a politician, so keeping the balance between the Jews and the Romans and, and keeping life uh, together. Peter had been following along. We know that, that John likely was following along. It seemed that John had access to these guys' house, and he was the, 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 the method to how uh, Peter and him were able to get close access to, to, to the proximity to what was happening. Um, if you're searching amongst the Gospels, trying to correlate how this, all of the story, what they all say, because no one Gospel account gives a complete picture of, of the trial. They all have their various angles. And the, the, the one, specifically the Gospel of John, it, it sounds like that Jude or Peter, as he's entering into the courtyard, as he's there by the fire, it, it, John makes a really strong case that this is happening in the courtyard of the high priest Annas, that the first denial happened there. But then when we read this, 
because of the flow of the story, it makes it look like, well, it looks like he's at Caiaphas's courtyard. Um, without creating a bunch, a bunch of useless arguments, this is really easily resolved by a lot of commentators, a lot of historians. The, the reality is, is that Caiaphas and Annas probably shared a very large compound and had a, had a shared courtyard. And so if you're one who's wrestling with these inconsistencies, I don't really see an inconsistency. For the rest of you who don't care about those things, we'll just move on. So we know that Peter is inside of the courtyard. It says that um, he was inside the courtyard, but he was outside. So there's this wall around the compound. He would enter through the front door, like a lot of places in the village. You would enter in, but then you're outside, and then there's various buildings around. And so as he's outside, inside of the compound, we're told that a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus, the Galilean. And so here we have it, the first opportunity for Jesus, or Peter to deny um, Jesus. Uh, of the three denials, two deal with servant girls that approach Peter, sort of ask him. Uh, the, the first she makes her statement. The second one is sort of more direct and more locking in Peter to the, to the event. Um, Peter, I'm sure, is afraid. This is the middle of the night. He knows he's connected to Jesus. He just cut off the ear of one of the servants. The scripture doesn't say, but I, I, I know when I read this, I'm very quick to sort of assume that the servants in the crowds that are, that are trying to track down Jesus, uh, that they're quick to sort of try to bring him under arrest. I'm not so sure. Because remember what happened. Uh, uh, the, the slave of Malchus, or maybe Malchus, I, I'm blanking if Malchus was the actual guy, but I think it was a slave of Malchus. He had his ear cut off. Jesus then takes the ear. I don't know how that worked, if it was on the ground or hanging. Like, like, I've never done that before. <laughs> like, but he, you know, like Mr. Potato Head, sticks the ear... <laughs> back on and it's healed and can you imagine if you were that guy or you witnessed what happened i think you could make a case that they were sort of in awe that this jesus who just he my ear was off and now it's totally healed and then amongst the servants there's some interest in what just happened and they may not be like the bad guys and so Peter's there, we're told in John that he's, it's, it must be cold because there's a, a fire and he's keeping himself warm. And this servant girl comes up and she says, you two were with Jesus, the Galilean. And look at Peter's reaction. But he denied it before them all saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, now the first one, I can defend Peter a little bit. I don't think that this is a, an intentional denial that he went into this saying, I'm trying to hide from Jesus. I, I think he was there trying. He's focused on what's happening with Jesus. What's the outcome? Do they know at this point? I don't know. And, and as he's focusing on Jesus, the girl says, hey, you're with him. And I think this was sort of a, a reflex, like, hey, you're, you're crazy. Just get away from me. I don't know what you're talking about. Like sort of just, just move along without even thinking. And sometimes our denying Jesus sort of comes like that. We, it's just sort of our, our reflex. Now, the second one, I can't defend Peter so much. In verse 71, when he gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and, he said to those, and said to those who were there, 
So now the servant girl, another one, sees him, identifies him. She looks at all the people that are around, and she says to them, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. He's one of them. Now, Peter, he again denied it with an oath. This, this would be the equivalent of being in a courtroom, taking a Bible, placing your left hand on the Bible, putting your right hand up, and saying, I swear to God, I do not know this man. And this isn't even, he's, he's not, what am I trying to say here? He's not even distancing himself from Jesus. Like, yeah, I know him. We're both from the Galilee region. Like, he, yeah, like there were, like Jesus did all sorts of miracles. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people descended and, and watched yeah, he's not saying, yeah, I know who he is. We're from the same town, but there's a lot of people from Galilee in this region. He's just saying, I don't even know who the guy is. I don't know that I've ever encountered like a, just a total, complete, bull, like, a, a, like in reality, like you're dead to me and I don't even know who that person is and that they, they take it that seriously. The closest thing I think I've ever encountered it's not even my story. It's connected to my father-in-law. My father-in-law got saved. He was in a very legalistic sort of organization. He, he ended up going to seminary. He ended up moving to Spain, serving as a missionary under this organization. About, we'll just say, somewhere around the six to seven year mark, as he's teaching the scriptures to the people, he's realizing that the scriptures don't support the sort of the fundamentalist, legalistic sort of um, teaching of his organization. And he realized that he could no longer take money from them and teach the word of God faithfully. So he resigned from the organization while overseas, and then they remained in Spain for a couple of years. When he got back from Spain, the story goes that the man who mentored him, who discipled him, who eventually ordained him into the ministry, that when he got back and saw my father-in-law, and people were asking me, he's like, I don't even know that guy. I don't know who this John Hilton is. And I was like, how could, like, I, I, like okay, so people like mature and they grow, they go different ways. I can't imagine somebody who like, who you knew and loved and partnered with, that because they go a different direction, I can say, oh, he went a different direction. Like, I still hold to these views, but, you know, John went his way. I, I, I'm still doing this. And yeah, we, we knew each other. But to say, like, I don't even know the guy. And this is kind of what Peter's doing here. He's like, I don't even know the man. But his, his accent is going to give him away even more. In verse 73, a little later, the bystanders, so as the crowd's looking and they're giving their assessment of Peter, the, the more Peter's trying to get out of the limelight, the more he's getting in the limelight. It's like the harder he tries, the, the more on trial he finds himself. And so the bystanders now come to Peter and say, surely... You two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. This week, I came to learn that my, my good friend, Barry Mahler, who's the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel, uh, Fallbrook, I, I learned that he was from Kentucky. I had no idea. And all of his, his family's from Kentucky. And you guys know Colonel Sanders? I love that guy and his food. But apparently, Colonel, it has nothing to do with the military. It has something to do with, like, the governor of Kentucky can can sort of knight you with the title colonel. And apparently Barry has been knighted with the colonel thing. And I've learned that when he goes to Kentucky, they don't call him Barry, they call him Bear. And so I've been calling him all week. I'm like, hey, is Colonel Bear there? 
And he's like, what? I'm like, is this Colonel Bear? He's like, what are you talking? I'm like, hey, you're from Kentucky. You're a colonel. I'm going to start showing you due respect, calling you Colonel Bear. He's like, I don't know. Will you stop? Like, leave me alone. I'm like, I'm not going to let this one die. He will forever. He's preaching here in June. And so I want you guys all to welcome him with Colonel Bear, if we remember at that time. And so I'm teasing him about the whole thing. And I would, I think the equivalent here is the, the gallery, these are the, like the hillbillies. I would try to mimic like somebody from Alabama. I just can't do it. Like I'm from California and I, I don't have a Southern draw. But if you're in California and you meet somebody from the South, they could have lived here for decades. And it's like, oh, you're from the South. Where are you from? I'm not from the South. It's like, yes, you are. Like you're not going to tell me you're from San Diego because you don't speak like one of us. And so this is the situation Peter finds himself in. He's clearly from Galilee. He's clearly with Jesus. And then he says, it says that he began to curse and swear, I don't know the man. Now, to read some commentators on this, this is hilarious. This is the Apostle Peter. It says that he began to curse and swear. And to hear the, the dialogue between the guys, or to read the dialogue between the guys, like, well, he is, he is a fisherman. He's a sailor. And we all know sailors know how to swear. So maybe he's trying to use some, like, profanity. Um, or was he sort of, like, taking the Lord's name in vain? And it's kind of funny because it's very easy to think, oh, it's more funny to think of the Apostle Peter as, like, uh, using some uh, profanity and almost like it's worse. But the reality is, is using profanity is nothing compared to, like, taking the Lord's name in vain. And there seems to be evidence, I sort of believe that this, this is, uh, that, that he's taking the Lord's name in vain. Uh, MacArthur says this on this section in these words. He says, uh, to curse is a very strong term that involved pronouncing death upon oneself at the hand of God if one were lying. If perhaps the most serious taking of the Lord's name in vain, it, it, it is the most serious taking of the Lord's name in vain that is conceivable. Peter said, in essence, may God kill me and damn me if I am not speaking the truth. Uh, to swear was a less extreme pledge of the truthfulness, uh, uh, pledge of truthfulness, but was nevertheless a strong affirmation. So think about this. Here Peter is in the courtyard. Uh, Twelve hours before, he cut off a guy's ear. I mean, twelve hours, like hours earlier, cut off a guy's ear. And now he's in the courtyard saying, may God strike me dead and send me to hell if I'm telling a lie. I do not know this man. There's no stronger denial that is possible. And as he says this, we're told immediately a rooster crowed. Now, Matthew doesn't really, I don't think his emphasis is so much on Peter. His focus is on Jesus and who Jesus is. His whole case is showing and trying to affirm to the Jewish reader that Jesus is the Messiah. But in Luke 22, verse 61, we're told that, uh, that as he records the story, he says, immediately a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said. Oh, I get goosebumps. Can you imagine? Peter's, he's demonstrating love to Jesus by by placing himself in the proximity of this trial. And yet as he's asked by these two servant girls and then the crowd, he's denying that he even knows Jesus. And 
they're, they clearly can see into where Jesus is taking these beatings. Remember, they'd, they, they were spit in his face. They, were, they, they had been striking him, saying, prophecy to us, who, who hit you? And as Peter swears an oath before God, may God strike me down and damn me. I don't even know the guy. Rooster crows. He looks across the courtyard. Remember, it's pre-dawn at this point. I imagine Peter has a little light on his face from the fire, and inside the room, I'm sure it's lit up by fire for the trial. Jesus makes eye contact with Peter, and he remembers what Jesus had said. Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. I'm trying to think, what, what, what sort of flashbacks did Peter have? I, I, I think back to Matthew 16 when they're up at Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus begins to tell them that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And Peter makes his first bold assessment that there's no way that he'll be crucified, not on Peter's life. He will not let Jesus be put to death. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're, you're a stumbling block to me. I have to go this road. This is, this is the only way to bring redemption to humanity. I think of the previous night in the upper room. Jesus had just washed their feet. He talked about that there was a betrayer amongst them and they started to ponder amongst themselves. And then Peter says, I will not betray you. I'll give my life for you. And Jesus says, Peter, you know, before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me three times. This is, this is, you know, we, like, how many people walked on water? We always say, oh, Jesus. Well, Peter walked on water too. We go back to think that this, this Peter, when he saw Jesus walking on the water, he had the faith to get out of the boat and take at least a few steps before that faith gave in, and he sunk. This Peter saw the transfiguration when Jesus pulled Peter, James, and John up to the hill, and he transfigured himself so that his deity was revealed for them to see. This Peter saw the multiplication, the feeding of the 5,000. He, he saw his mother-in-law be healed from her sickness. He saw probably every miracle that Jesus did. He walked with Jesus. He had intimate teaching with Jesus. I think all of this in a moment he's going through and I just denied and there's the rooster and it had to hurt. It, 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 this had to hurt and sting so bad. And we're told that he went out and he wept bitterly. This word, this, this, this bitterly could be described as like mental agony, anguish. At like the deepest level. And I can't help but to think that Peter, in his mind, if Jesus was right about my denying him, he must be right about his crucifixion too. And he knows the outcome. They just sentenced him to death. You know, we all deny Jesus in different ways, some probably more significant than others. I'm sorry if you guys have heard this story before, but I only have one story in my coming to Christ. And, and so I've shared this story. I, uh, I can't relive my life, but uh, my greatest denial it was one of the most, looking back at my life, it was the, one of the most painful memories of my life. And it was probably also one of the most defining moments in my life in my relationship with Christ. So I came to Christ somewhere between 
we call it 1993 to 1996. Somewhere in that three-year window, I became a Christian. Um, around 96, I, I, I started to get serious about going to church and growing in my relationship with God. I, I had begun the journey of reading through the Bible. Um, I'd always struggled with, uh, in the SEAL teams, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And when it came to alcohol, alcohol was a competition, and so I like to compete. And so with alcohol, I did a whole bunch of stupid stuff. And, and I struggled with the balance of how does, you know, how, how does my Christianity fit with being a Navy SEAL? And how, how, how do I sort of live in these two worlds? And, and the reality was is that I lived in both of the worlds. I sort of had one foot in one world and one foot in the other world, and I was going. And by the end of it, I sort of had myself in the splits, and it was painful. And I wasn't literally doing the splits, but emotionally I was. And one of my best friends... In the teams, we were in different platoons, and we, we realized that we would be in San Diego at the same town. He was from Atlanta. We realized, hey, the Padres and the Braves are playing. Let's go to our watering hole, Danny's in Coronado. It's a little seal pub. And so we went there, and Padres were winning. So I started talking smack, and somehow in our drunken stupor, we were able to buy plane tickets to Atlanta. And that night, we flew to Atlanta to see the rest of the series. By the time I got there, I started sobering up and feeling like extremely convicted because I'd been going to church and now I found myself in Atlanta drying up going, how did I get myself into this gunner? How? And so he continued to drink. I continued to sort of act like I was drinking, but I just, I just wanted to go home. But I did like Padres lost the next two games. We got in the plane and once you know it in the plane, it was terrible. There are two, two thirds of the way back. The whole rest of the plane was this huge church doing a missions trip. And in the seat behind us was a pastor and a young lady. And the, and the pastor was asking her about how she came to Christ and her whole story. So the, the gospel is being presented behind us. I was so humiliated and so like, how, how, I, all I want to do is walk with the Lord, and I kept failing over and over and over again. And my drunken buddy was getting irate at the conversation behind us to where he starts screaming at the people. Like, I'm praying, Lord, like, maybe can you help me fall asleep? And I remember trying to fall asleep, and then he started ordering drinks for me and then himself, but then he was drinking all of them. And, and, and it was like, then I started praying, Lord, can you pass him out? And so the Lord put him to sleep, thankfully, for a little bit there. Or somebody did, or maybe the alcohol. I, all I know is that the... It was the longest five hours of my life. We get out of the plane as we're walking down the sort of the, the, the gateway into the terminal. He looks at me and he says, hey, if that guy says Jesus one more time, I'm going to punch him in the face. And I'm like, dude, what is wrong with you? You're starting to offend me. And he looked at me and he said, Gunnar, I believe just like you do, that there's a God in everything, but this whole Jesus thing is too much. And it was like a dagger in my back. See, I didn't, I didn't necessarily deny Jesus with my words, but I think worse, I denied him with my life. And here, my best friend in the whole world had no idea that I'd given my life to Christ, that I was going to church. Like, I was trying to race home from Atlanta to get off the plane to get to church that night. It's painful. So my heart breaks for Peter in this moment. I can't, like, I can't. And if a story ended here, Matthew doesn't continue with the story. But we know from John 21 
that Peter's story's not over. Well, Matthew's never going to use his name again in the Gospel of Matthew. Peter is done, like, by name in Matthew at this point. But after the resurrection of Christ, we know that Peter goes back to fishing. They've been fishing all night. Jesus in his resurrected body shows up at the shoreline, looks out at the boat. Hey, you guys catch anything last night? Nope, terrible night. Hey, why don't you guys just try throwing the net over on the right side of the boat and see what happens? They throw over so many fish. At that moment, Peter knows that's the Lord. And he basically, in all of his clothes, he jumps into the water. I wonder, one of my questions when I get to heaven, if I can ask Peter, Peter, were you trying to walk on water again? Like, I, I, like, I, I, like, I, I wouldn't think, I, like, I think that, like, Peter was like, I'm going to show you, Lord, that I can, like, earn my way back, and I can do that. I have, I have faith again. And we see Peter on his face before the Lord, and we see this whole process of restoration. And from that moment, Peter's a changed man. It's beautiful. Matthew continues, verse 27. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. The, they'd already made their decision. This is what's referred to as the third Jewish trial. They, 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 they made their decision um, already. This is just sort of, I think this is like a formality. Let's do the paperwork, do, get our story straight so we can send him over to Pontius Pilate. Um, they bound him, they led away, they delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the, the, um, the governor, which is where we'll pick up next week in verse 11. The, we begin the, the Roman trials, these three trials. He's going to be found innocent by all three trials. Um, ultimately, they're going to concede to the people and have Jesus executed to sort of keep peace uh, in Jerusalem. And then in verse 3, our story shifts over to Judas. And we're going to see him at his worst. And we read, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. Now, a few years ago, I, I don't know what it, why it was, but I was on this kick to try to prove Judas's innocence or that he, he, um, he turned his life around and I was looking through all, like maybe, maybe he came to Christ at the very end, but then there's no evidence that that happened. Uh, the, the, the words that I had a hard time getting around was Jesus telling him like, hey, it would have been better for this guy never to be born than to be born because he's going to basically be suffering for eternity. But I don't think that Judas, when he was betraying Jesus, I don't think that he thought that he was getting Jesus killed. I don't think Judas liked what Jesus had to, to say to him. I don't think he liked the whole, hey, pick up your cross and follow me. Hey, if you want to be great in this life, be the least of these. And so I think Judas just sort of thought he was jumping ship, that he would basically surrender Jesus over. He would become the hero amongst the scribes and the Pharisees, and then he'd be sort of fast-tracked and sort of, um, you know, that book trying to win people and uh, win friends and influence people, that he was going to sort of be this new guy on this new track. But this night when he betrayed him and he sees this is, they're going to kill him. This is not what I thought. Now, don't be, con don't be confused by this word remorse. This word remorse makes you think uh, that it's almost repentance. Now, lunida is a Greek lexicon, and on this word, it says this. It conveys a sense of change of mind or feeling regret, which falls short of full-fledged repentance, uh, uh, which is according to lunida. And so... Uh, 
he felt guilty for what had happened. He, it's like the kid who gets in trouble for stealing some cookies and they're in trouble that they got caught. They feel bad that they got caught, but they don't necessarily have remorse for, for what they did in the sense of wanting restoration to make things right. There was a powerful thought by one commentator that said he confessed, he confesses to the wrong group of people and then simply gives up on life. So he felt remorse. He re- returned to 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And so while he never gets right with God, he should have gotten right with God, not with these guys. And they respond, what is this to us? See to that yourself. What great spiritual leaders. Like these are the priests of Israel. These are the spiritual leaders of the nation. Here's a man who's broken, suicidal. He's like, I've done something wrong. Take back your money. They're like, that's not our problem. That's your problem. Get out of here, kid. Horrible. These guys make me angry. And so then Judas threw 30 pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary, and he departed, and he went away and hanged himself. As a terribly sad ending, I believe up to the very last moment that Judas killed himself, I fully, 100%, with, there's no doubt within me that had Judas fallen on his face, confessed his sin, called out to God, everything I see about God, I think God would have forgiven him, which is blows my mind to think of God's mercy and kindness and gentleness towards us. But there's no evidence scripturally that he did. And we reach a place in my notes that is, it's really difficult for me. I, um, I simply have here, talk from your heart. What do you have to say about suicide, Gunner? I have no script at this part. Today's front page paper, I don't know if anybody saw it, it's, it's, uh, the 26th is going to be the 20th anniversary of uh, the Heaven's Gate uh, cult where they, 39 of them took their lives, front page paper, then Mike shows up in his Nikes. I thought, did you read the paper this morning? And uh, it's about these 39 people who religiously in San Diego, they, uh, they believe that suicide was sort of the, the gateway to the spaceship behind the Haley-Bopp comet uh, t- to get into heaven. And it freaked out the basically uh, everybody on a lot of different levels, but a lot of evangelicals were freaked out because their theology was, there was some like, they were very close. They, well, too, I should say they were too close for comfort is probably the, uh, but they were also a little bit out there. And, and, and so it's obvious like what they did, it was like Satan's hand is behind suicide. I don't know how many suicide calls I've been to as a, as a chaplain, as a, as, a, as a pastor. I don't think that there's any more the painful death for families, for those who are left behind. Um, my life personally has been touched by suicide. Um, the guy who led me to the Lord ended up killing himself a few years ago, and it, it shook me to my core. It leaves those who are left behind sort of with questions of why and what could I have done, and, and there's really no greater pain. I, I used to be harsh 
in my heart towards those who committed suicide. I remember sort of thinking um, that it was a coward's way out. You know, how could they be so weak? How could they do this to people? Very, very abrasive in my thought towards those who committed suicide. And in a seminary class, I had this professor who was the best, one of the better teachers that I had, and he didn't teach us a single thing all, all, all semester. He was the counseling pastor at Shadow Mountain Church, and the class was crisis counseling. And so instead of teaching us, what he did is every single week during this class, he simply brought in those that were in crisis and had gone through trauma. I'll never forget the DE agent who had terminal brain cancer and was like dying. And he got in there and shared with us future pastors what things not to say to individuals, things that had helped him in his journey of dying. I think he died a few weeks after he came and spoke with us. One of the people that came in were these parents whose teenage son uh, committed suicide in front of the, the principal's office at his high school. And it was weeks prior, and they came and they spoke with us. And every week, it was so gut-wrenching to hear these stories. But at the same time, it was profound to me entering the ministry to, to, to learn from these people. And I and followed the week that followed um, the parents whose son committed suicide was a lady who basically attempted suicide and they saved her. And then she came and shared about her season of depression. And my, my whole view of suicide sort of adjusted. I became more compassionate, uh, more sorrowful, because I don't think I can imagine the great pain and agony, the, the low that these people are in, that, that it's not about killing themselves. It's about getting out of of the pain that they're in. And, and so on one hand, if I'm talking to somebody who is suicidal, I will never assure anybody of their salvation who is, who is talking with me and clearly trying to make plans with clergy to make sure that they're good to go with God before they do it. I will never, ever, ever, ever give assurance because suicide is never part of God's plan. It is always Satan. To those of us who have lost loved ones, however, I, I don't think suicide, like the Catholic Church teaches, that it's the unpardonable sin. We did nothing to gain our salvation. We did nothing to earn it. It's simply belief. Our works don't lose our salvation. Our, our, our works sort of demonstrate fruit in our life and evidence, and there's not fruit in your life if you're taking your life. But I've been to uh, two suicide cases stand out to me. I happen to... Fortunately, I was driving down the road and a guy jumped off a bridge. I stopped to go help him. And when I rolled him over trying to resuscitate him, he eventually died. But when I rolled over, he had this huge Bible tucked over. And when he rolled over, this is, I'll never forget this Spanish Bible that just sort of rolled over. And then this saint of a lady, who I'm convinced to this day was an angel, she laid next to this guy who was dying and just started praying with him in Spanish. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Another guy had Bible memory verses all over, like in his pockets and there, like struck, like deep spiritual warfare. And it's, it's, it's a horrible thing. And so 
I don't know, I probably said enough. I don't know if I've accomplished my mission and what I wanted to share about. But, 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 but suicide is ugly. If you, if you know somebody or you're concerned with them, for them taking their lives, I'd encourage you to do the hard thing and get them help. If you have to call the police to get them help, like it's better to, to risk getting them mad at you and saving their life than to think you should have done something and not to have done it and then to take their life. But, but this is just, uh, Judas is at his low. And it's so sad because there was so much opportunity that, that, that I believe that God would have forgiven him and restored him like he did to Peter. And now we get to the guys that tick me off. Like, these guys make me so angry. Verse 6, the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. The hypocrisy here is so vile. And it's what religion can do, where you create all of these systems of rules and you begin to live by these rules that are not in the scriptures. You you create this little tower for yourself where you are so much better than everybody else and then you condemn everybody else that you don't even see how disgusting you're acting before God. You know, this, this money's defiled, it's blood money. Whose money was this? Who paid for the, this betrayal? Who paid to get Jesus? Who had the trial to bring him to be executed? They did. This is their money. And now they're saying, oh, this money, it's, it's blood money. We can't use it because it was ba-. Like, guys, the problem is not the money. The problem is you all. I mean, not you all, but them. <laughs> like, they were vile, clothed in religion. And so they conferred together, and with the money, they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers for this reason. That field has been called the field of blood to this day. You go to Israel today, you go outside of the city, down in the valley, there's this beautiful park-like setting. It's the field of blood. It's where Judas hanged himself. It's still there to this day. Now, in the midst of this, I find myself getting mad at the religious leaders. Matthew is more spiritually minded than I am. He looks at this whole scene, and he says, guys, This is critical. Don't get mad. You need to understand that this is yet one more prophecy affirming that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And he's going to quote from Jeremiah, and he's going to quote from Zechariah. He's only going to mention the the major prophet's name, but his quote is sort of like a, a, a merging of these two. And look what he writes. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. In the bind of the field, prophecy was fulfilled. And they, quoting from the Old Testament, they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave it, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. The point that Matthew wants us to take home is there is so much prophecy affirming that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. There is overwhelming evidence that Jesus is worth our faith. It's not blind faith. It's overwhelming evidence supporting his claims of who he was. And so it comes back to this, uh, the, the, the courtroom trial that's happening in your heart. Is Jesus who he claimed to be? Is there evidence supporting this? And if there is, then he has a claim on your life and you really owe him everything because he is everything. 
And so when I look at these two men, these two low places, I think that there's a couple lessons that we can learn from each of them. From both of them, a warning to us is that if you reject and resist the will of God in your life, it'll lead you to very dangerous places. Both of these guys didn't like what Jesus had to say. Peter didn't like that Jesus said that he was going to go to the cross. He didn't like um, the, the method that Jesus was using to bring salvation. Judas didn't like that Jesus said that, they, hey, if you want to be great, be the least of these. So they went on their own course. They did their own thing, and they both ended up in very, very dark places. From both, there's a, there's a huge warning to us. These guys walked with Jesus. They were selected by Jesus. They watched the miracles. They saw these huge things happen, and yet they both failed. If you put any confidence in your flesh, you're in trouble. If you think that you're better than whatever sin you think others are committing that you're not prone to, you're in trouble. Pride goes before the fall. And if these two guys who walked and lived with Jesus, they fell, you can fall, I can fall. It should bring us to our knees in humility and worship and and pleading with the Lord to help us in our journey with him. And in their failure, we see two different things. We see Peter who denied Christ. In Judas, we see the betrayal. In their dealing with their brokenness, we see two different things. In Judas, he never came to a place of repentance. He never came to a place of belief. He never got right with God that was totally and completely open to him. In Peter, not in the story today, but we see Peter, a broken man before the Lord. He humbled himself and Jesus picked him up. He commissioned him and we see Peter doing great. Peter in Acts is a totally different man. I believe ultimately God's desire is that we would turn to him, we would be restored to him, we would receive his forgiveness. I want to end with a great truth that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And Father, we do thank you for the stories of the men and women found in the scriptures. We thank you for their failures that are so clear and so in our face. It's obvious that there is only one who is perfect and without sin, and that's Jesus. The evidence is overwhelming. And Father, I pray for those in our midst who may be wrestling with past sins and rejection of you and denial of you and and they think that there's no hope. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to, to understand the magnitude of your grace, your love, your kindness, your desire for us, Lord, that you want us to be reconciled to you. And Father, for those of us that have received salvation. We're reminded, Lord, that we're so grateful that it's not through our works. It's through faith in your work. Lord, I pray that you would guard us, guard our paths, help us to bring glory to you in this life. Lord, our flesh is strong and it's so easy to get off of track and and to, to, to dabble in sin. 
Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. We can't do it on our own. We need you desperately. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.